If you're looking for a quality Kickstarter marketing specialist, I recommend the folks over at Next Level Web. They charge flat fees with an easy monthly agreement and they get serious results. Their goal is to get you funded on day one and their rate of success for that is above 90%, regardless if you're a veteran or a first-time creator. As a client myself, I can personally attest to their quality as they have helped me raise tens of thousands of dollars for my own projects. So if your email list looks pitiful, but your game is awesome, head on over to nextlevelweb.com slash kickstarter and take your marketing to the next level. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, talking about cooperative games. What does it look like to design a co-op experience and we're talking to uh, a guy that has burnt his ships for the co-op space has gone all in on co-ops the guy i go to first and foremost when i'm wondering about a co-op game either a playthrough or review to the one-stop co-op shop mr michael kelly mike welcome to the show hey gabe so great to be here thanks for inviting me yeah man really glad to have you here one because you got some really cool things that you've been working on that are coming uh, out, coming out next year, and I'm excited to chat about. But also, it's just because you're, you're again, like you're the guy I go to. Like if I have a a game I'm wondering about, I'm curious about that's a co-op or a solo mode or solo game. Like your your channel on YouTube is the first one I go to to hear about it, either to watch a playthrough or hear your your five thoughts, like fast five, or I can't remember what you call it exactly. But anyway, you're like your your main points about the game. And so, yeah, just excited to dive into what does it look like to design a good cooperative experience. But before we get into that, who are you? How'd you get into game design? All that kind of thing. Yeah. So uh, I am, uh, my main job is a high school teacher and I used to be a professional actor. So I've kind of bounced around careers a bit, but now I've been a a teacher for 16, 17 years. Getting old. Uh, But yes, I I think like many, I I was a child of the eighties and I first got into gaming with RPGs. I would watch my older brothers play. Uh, they played a lot of like the White Wolf ones, like Vampire the Masquerade and that kind of thing. They played D&D, of course. I played a lot of like the original Red Box and then some of the uh, the later editions. Um, and yeah, I used to like go to my local game store. I had a pretty cool one that was close by. And I would just sit there and read like the RPG modules, <laughs> you know, just like kind of sit in the corner and immerse myself in these fantasy worlds. And then I eventually got into hobby gaming and board gaming But that was pretty late. That was mainly in high school. Uh, When I was in high school, they actually opened up a new game store, like right by my high school. Like I could walk there after school. And then I got a job there. That was the first job I ever worked, uh, teaching people games and stocking the shelves and running the register and all of that around uh, when I was like 16. So that's when I really got into, like I played a bit of magic in middle school, uh, like a little bit of Netrunner, a little bit of Legend of the Five Rings. Like I was kind of, I caught the CCG bug like many people did. But yeah, once I uh, was working at the game store, that's when I was like really playing board games. Like I got into a lot of uh, Steve Jackson games. Uh, We used to play a lot of Junta and uh, (laughs) Nuclear War and uh, all these incredibly competitive games. I got into war gaming a lot. I I would play a lot of 1v1 like, you know, um, Hex and Tile and and Chit War games. Um, And yeah, just (laughs) kind of a a, a wide range of games. And I didn't really play much cooperative games because there weren't many cooperative games at that point. Like, what was there? I guess uh, Knizia's 
Lord of the Rings came out like near the the end of my high school career, maybe or into college or I forget the exact year that was out. But uh, I was into board games a lot then. And it kind of faded off with uh, college. I was busy. I was uh, I was <laughs> doing the theater thing and 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 having social life and such. And board games weren't really part of that life yet. So then I, I came back to it again when I was like living in an apartment and like first starting out with my career and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, so how I got into designing, sort of a random story. Uh, I met a guy at my <laughs> local friendly game store, how that uh, happens sometimes. And he had a regular game night and I started going to that. And there was like five of us or six of us. And at some point he was like, hey, I'm designing a board game. Uh, do you want to you want to like help me out and look at it? You know, do you want to try it out? That, that, that horrible question you ask your friends. Do you want to play my crappy game that isn't <laughs> well developed or tested or anything? Would you like to waste the next three hours? <laughs> yes, exactly. And, and, then, <laughs> and, and then feel guilty and kind of ashamed as you decide how much you want to tell me about how bad that experience was. <laughs> so we uh, we did that together. And then um, I kind of got like into the process. And I, I had uh, I had mucked around with like designing my own RPGs when I was a kid like stupid RPGs. Like what would it be like if I was a, like a, a jerk guinea pig, like, or a hamster, I was looking at my pets and like trying to make them like hold weapons and attack with swords. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, so, so I really enjoyed working with him. This is a Peter, by the way, who is my co-host for the podcast and he's on the streaming channel. We have two YouTube channels, the streaming channel. He's one of the main guys there. So we, uh, we started like designing that game together and that game, uh, we pitched it for a long time. We went to the unpublished game conventions and all that kind of stuff. Never really went anywhere. We, we, I think over the course of like the, I don't know, almost like 10 years we've worked on that one. Um, maybe it got signed for a contract once and then something happened and it got pulled out. So, uh, but we, we eventually got two games published. This is like going back, I guess, six years ago, seven years ago. So the first one we ever got to be signed and actually published was Salvation Road. That's a fully cooperative uh, Mad Max post-apocalyptic game. That was with Van Ryder Games. And then uh, pretty quickly after that, we got a competitive game. At some point, we designed a competitive game, which is weird to me now. Um, <laughs> that was uh, Dark Dealings. That's a like card drafting, uh, quick playing uh, card game. That uh, the both those were on Kickstarter. Both of them did pretty well. And Dark Dealings had a solo mode, so I was already committed to like at least a solo part of things pretty early on. And we've continued designing since then, but uh, it's been until the last like couple of years that things have stuck. Uh, I know this has maybe happened to you, Gabe, although I know you do your own stuff, so maybe not, but we've had so many games signed by publishers and then the publisher went under or the contract ran out and they never did anything with it or they stopped communicating with us. It's like all these things that were really frustrating when we had these, I mean, we have these designs that I still think are great that I haven't seen the light of day. So that's kind of led to uh, Mega Man, which I know we'll talk about in a little bit. And also, um, we've decided to, uh, you know, maybe inspired a bit by you, Gabe. <laughs> we're uh, publishing some of our own games now. So we're actually going to publish a smallish uh, card game deck building adventure game uh, next year, probably kickstarting early next year. We've already got it fully designed. We've got it tested. We've uh, found an artist. We're looking for graphic designers right now. So I, I, I run a YouTube channel with some other guys. I design games and I'm getting into the publishing <laughs> side of things, too. <laughs> So yeah, that, that's how I got into design. Um, it's it's been a weird journey, but it's it's great to have Peter with me. Like having a co-designer has made things a lot easier, at least for us and kind of our process. Yeah, that's awesome. And honestly, that's 
some of the stuff you're talking about right there is why I got into publishing. I got so tired. I get it, man. I get it. Yeah. I get so tired of people lying to my face, you know, yes. like having really good interactions and they say all the things you want to hear and they're like, oh yeah, we're going to sign it. We're going to offer you a contract. And you know, like, they just lead you on or they disappear and they, they, you know, you send them a prototype and then they don't, they, they don't respond when you follow up. I mean, I've had that happen so many times and I just got tired of it. And I was like, eventually, you know, I think I'm just going to figure this out for myself. I'm going to bet on myself. I'm going to call my own number. I'm not going to wait on somebody to call, call it for me. And I'm just going to do it myself. And I'm going to make mistakes and it's going to cost me some money here and there. But at the end of the day, at least I know what's going out into the world and I'm not relying on other people. Now, I personally, I, I still pitch games to other companies that are maybe not the best fit for me or, you know, there, there's only so many games you can publish yourself in a year. Uh, so I still look for other companies to work with. But yeah, I, I feel like a lot of people have run into that. And so if you're listening to this and you're like, gosh, this keeps happening to me, you're not alone by any stretch of the imagination. Even those of us who've been in the industry for a long time. And in your case, Mike, you have a 30,000 subscriber YouTube channel. I have this podcast has been around for a long time. It's coming up on 300 episodes. I mean, even if you're like pretty well known, in the industry, people still lie to you. They still screw you over. They still ghost you. And it's just unfortunate of any business in any industry. That's just the way it goes. Yeah. And and the ghosting is the most common. And for me, it's the most frustrating. And I get it. People are busy. And I'm sure our inbox, like One Stop Co-op Shop's inbox, is not as busy as some people's inboxes. We get a lot of emails, but it's not as many as some places. But I don't understand. Like (laughs) when you have somebody in a contract and then you just never respond to them. I guess, you know, it feels to me like when you're a coward in a relationship, you don't want to break up with them. So you just like stop communicating until they break up with you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, I hate that stuff. It makes me so. But anyway, let's not dwell on the negative. Uh, good, right. <laughs> positive things are coming in the future. That's great. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, let's, uh, before we dive into co-op games, tell me a little bit more about the channel. Like, how did that start? Like I said, it's coming up on, I think, around 30,000 subscribers. Like, Yeah, we're, we're getting close there. I think we're at like 20, just about at 28,000 now. Yeah, it's amazing. So I didn't start the channel. De- definitely want to make that very clear. Uh, Colin is the originator of the channel. Uh, he's the one who picked the name and all of that. And he- he's the one who built it up from one subscriber. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, hey, my wife subscribed to the channel and that's it. <laughs> um, so and he set out to do just co-op playthroughs. At first, he wasn't really doing solo. And at first, there weren't any reviews or anything. And it's sort of a tangled web, so I'll try to keep it brief. <laughs> but uh, Peter and I started a podcast. After our games had been published, we were like, hey, and this is actually kind of funny, uh, Gabe, with what you do. Uh, we were like, hey, what if we do a podcast that's focused on game design, but specifically solo and co-op game design? But uh, we did it as like a review half and then a design half. So we'd ha- so, And this is like still the format most weeks of the podcast. Although now we also have Steve on the podcast sometimes and Jason Perez on the podcast quite often. So they kind of do their own thing. But when it's Peter and I, we tend to do a review of a game and then we talk about a design topic related to the game. So we started doing that. And uh, Colin, who already had the YouTube channel going and at that point, it was it was decent. I think it was like maybe 8000 subscribers. So it was pretty big already. Um, He had worked really hard on that. He found his friend Steve and they were like, hey, we like your podcast. We're going to start one, too. And we sort of like uh, (laughs) informally agreed because our podcast was every other week. We were like, hey, let's do it off weeks. You know, so you do a week and we'll do a week and we'll do the same day. And at some point, we were like, well, this is dumb. Why don't we just make it one podcast and we'll just have one podcast a week and it'll switch who's talking. So I think our podcast was really called Co-op Cast. That was the name for a little while. But then we we thought One Stop Co-op Shop had better re- name recognition because of the YouTube channel. So we just switched the podcast to being called that. So long story short, we joined each other on a podcast 
And then at some point I was like, hey, Colin, that, that looks kind of fun. I'm, I'm an actor. I've been on camera a lot. Like, maybe I could do something. And he's like, all right, what do you want to do? And I was like, I don't know. You're already doing playthroughs. What if I just do some reviews? And there's this, uh, where did I get the idea? Yeah, so, so, so the format is called Five and Five. And uh, basically, I, I the, the videos are about five minutes long. And I talk about, like, the five things that stand out the most to me about the design, good and bad. Um, I got it from this, there's, like, a movie reviewer. I forget what he's called. But he does really quick movie reviews and he calls out five points about the movie. It's not necessarily like the five most important things, but the five things that like he remembered about the movie, like this actor or the cinematography or the script or the amount of gore. Like he'll call out five aspects of the movie. So I was like, I like that. So that's kind of where the format came from. But yeah, so I started doing that. They were super awkward. If you go and watch my original reviews, um, some people still like this, but I would do like dress up. <laughs> like I would, and I would do like little skits <laughs> before the video and like all this wacky stuff. I, back when I had time, back when I was like, oh, Colin, I'll do like one review every two or three weeks or once every month. I'll just do one every once in a while when I feel like it. You know, so back then I had all the time in the world to like find costumes and, you know, do all this crazy stuff. Um, so then at some point... I, to be totally honest, I realized I could get review copies. People were like, hey, do you want a free game? And I was like, what? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is very early on. Clearly, my my motivations and like ideas have changed completely. But back then, I was like, yeah, I'll take a free game. Now, even then, I was like, but I'm, I'm still going to do an honest review. And my format, like if you watch our format, like it almost always has cons and mixes about a game. So... Even like a game that you send me, I'm still going to complain about it. I mean, you know this game. I've reviewed uh, several of your games at this point, oh, yeah. and and yeah, like it, I, I like them, but <laughs> it's not. I'm, I'm not going to just give you like sunshine and roses and like market for you, basically. Um, but yeah, so once I found out I could get free copies, I was like, hey, Colin, I guess I'll do some playthroughs too because they just like sent me this game. Like I think uh, the first one I got was the Reckoners um, board game, and I was like, all right, I guess I'll do a playthrough of this. So I like figured out playthroughs, and Colin helped me to do them better. And then the big thing that happened was Colin uh, got a little bit burned out. Like he was doing so much and he was having some family issues and some work stuff and he had to move and like there was a ton going on in his life. So he was like, I'm ending the channel. There will be no more one-stop co-op shop. And I don't know if I've told the story. So yeah, so he was fully going to end the channel. And I was like, Colin, stop. <laughs> I'm already doing, at this point, I was doing like at least one video a week. I was like, I'll do it. It won't be as many videos, but I'll do it. I'll take over the channel, okay? And whenever you want to come back, if you feel like you want to come back, you can come back. So... The deal we made, he, he did like, he, he was gone completely for maybe like a month or two. And then he came back. But the deal we made was like, he was like, I just want to play games I like. So you'll see on the channel, he'll play like Lord of the Rings LCG once a week. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or he'll do like every adventure in Sleeping Gods, a role player adventure. Like he'll play just his entire campaign. And it doesn't get a ton of views because, you know, you have diminishing returns, right? Nobody wants to watch episode 12 <laughs> of a playthrough if they didn't watch episodes 1 through 11. But that's what keeps him happy, and that's fine because my focus is on like covering the new games and doing playthroughs and reviews of like, uh, and not just new games, but mostly I cover like new things and kind of give people information on them. And then, um, I mean, God, since then it's grown a lot. So we, uh, Peter and Steve, started a streaming channel. So they do a lot of streaming playthroughs, like with live comments and stuff. Uh, Barrett from Meet Me at the Table, he still has his own channel, but he comes in like maybe once a week to do a playthrough with us. And like he'll kind of cross post it so it's on both channels, but he's still kind of part of the family. And then Jason Perez, he started, uh, he joined the podcast and he's doing like, he's posting some of the audio versions of his uh, conversations about like gaming culture and racism in gaming and history of gaming and all this really cool stuff on the podcast. And then he also does some playthroughs as well and some Kickstarter previews. So at this point, we've got six of us on the team. But the main YouTube channel is still mostly Colin and me. 
The podcast is uh, like mostly me, Peter, and Jason at this point, and the streaming channel is mostly uh, Steve and Peter. So it's it's kind of a mishmash of our responsibilities and stuff. Gotcha. Well, congratulations on just so many cool things and different avenues for people to approach your channel. And it's awesome to have a team. You know, it's awesome where you're not having to do every single thing that you got other people who can you know, create content and, and do stuff. And yeah, it's just really cool to see. And like I said, I, I really enjoy the stuff that you guys put out on a weekly basis. And I love being able to go back in the file and, and figure out, okay, have you, have you reviewed this game from three years ago? And, and have you done a playthrough and, or have, have you done seven playthroughs apparently? And so, oh, yeah. um, <laughs> you, you, you know, Colin likes a game when that happens, <laughs> when he just like <laughs> digs into it forever. <laughs> yeah. And I remember the sleeping gods one. I was like, Oh, there's, there's a bunch of these. Okay, cool. Cause I, I watched all those. I was, you know, I've been working on this game called Robomine which is very, has a very much a sleeping gods kind of vibe to it. So I actually watched, I am one of the viewers on every single one of those sleeping gods <laughs> videos awesome. because I wanted to understand how, how those games work really well with the, the adventure book and stuff like that. But anyway, let's, uh, let's switch gears a little bit. Let's get into co-op games. Let's talk about Mega Man, which congrats on getting that signed by Blacklist Games. And that's going to be coming out next year. And I think it's in pre-order right now. We'll talk about that a little bit more uh, in, a, in a minute. But before we even, actually, before we even get to the design and co-opness, how in the world did you get a licensed IP game signed by a fairly major publisher? I know there's a lot of people who listen to this show who would love to do a game based on their favorite comic book, favorite movie, favorite Netflix show, favorite video game, whatever. And you've been able to do that with Mega Man. And so give me give me the background story for how that happened. And then we'll actually dive into the game design and the mechanisms and the co-op nature of it and all that. Yeah, so it's a weird one. I've never had a game go like this um, and might never have a go like this again. <laughs> uh, so, you know, usually uh, Peter and I would design a game and I'll be totally honest that I am very much led by my movie loves and by like my video game loves. I'm a big kind of pop culture person in those uh, realms as well. So like Salvation Road was originally inspired by a video game based on The Walking Dead. So it was kind of a zombie game at first. And then my love of Mad Max Road Warrior which is an awesome movie, uh, kind of uh, switched it into a post-apocalyptic game, and we changed up the mechanics to match that. And Dark Dealings was uh, mainly based on my love of this old video game, Dungeon Keeper, that I used to play on the computer. So a lot of uh, games with me start with that, but I'm never making the IP version. I'm just inspired by, like, kind of the, uh, the ethos behind the game, you know, and, like, the theme of the game and the world of the game. So Mega Man, <laughs> it's, again, like a little bit of a story, but... Brady Sadler and I have become sort of like designing friends over time. And I don't really remember how it first happened. I don't remember how I talked to him in the first place. But I know one of the first games I got set was Street Masters. Like, I, th- I think I messaged him to ask him a question about like Warhammer Quest adventure card game. I was like, hey, look, Brady's on Facebook. Hey, Brady, I, I like your game. Can you answer this rules question for me? I'm annoying. Sorry. You know, and, and he was like, hey, uh, Sebastian Road, that game looked pretty cool. I was like, oh, hey, cool. And then. I was like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm starting to do reviews with One Stop Co-op Shop. He's like, oh, I got this game called Street Masters. I'll send it to you. And it's like, oh, you wait, you will? Because <laughs> again, like this is like maybe the second game I got a review copy of and I didn't know that was a thing. So yes, yeah, so we started talking and uh, for a while now, like when he's designing a game, he'll often ask me to come in and like just look at it. Like I have a whole, I mean, I'm sure you have this too, Gabe. Like you just kind of meet designers and then you talk shop, you know, and you show each other your games and you have them kind of pick it apart because they tend to be one of some of the best people to give you advice. Mm. Um, so yeah, so, so we've had that relationship for a while, which is why I give a disclaimer before every Blacklist game I do. I'm like, hey, uh, <laughs> I know Brady, so I'm going to try to be not biased, but that could always creep in. Um, 
But yeah, so uh, what happened with Mega Man Adventures, which uh, that's the full name of the game, Mega Man Adventures, um, is that <laughs> Brady, I was just talking, like we just talked some nights and I forget what game uh, I was working on at the time and what game he was working on, but he was like, hey, our boss, uh, the, the guy in charge of Blacklist, his previous job was getting IPs for like companies. Like he was the person who would negotiate those contracts. So he is really good at it and likes doing it. That's so a Brady, good friend to have. <laughs> yeah, I know, exactly. So Brady was like, hey, our boss has got some more IPs. We got blank and blank and blank. And one of them, his name was Mega Man. And I love Mega Man. For anybody listening who doesn't know what Mega Man is, you're probably older, uh, younger than me. But uh, <laughs> Mega Man, it was a, it started on the Nintendo Entertainment System on the Famicom uh, in Japan. And it was, it's like a little robot. It's a side-scrolling game. He fights uh, enemies through stages and he gets to the end boss, these robot masters. And the thing that was like unique in Mega Man, so cool, blew my mind as a kid. If you defeated the boss, you got their weapon. And then you could use that weapon in future stages. And the bosses were each vulnerable to one weapon. So like if you got Iceman's weapon, you could use it on the fire guy. And now he'd take double damage and it'd be easier to kill him if you did the right order of the bosses. So you'd like play the game and learn the correct order to fight the bosses in. And I love those games. I played Mega Man 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. Uh, <laughs> and the entire Mega Man X series, which is eight games. And the entire Mega Man Zero series, which I think is three or four. And some of the like the supplemental games. I played the Mega Man soccer video game. So <laughs> I've been a huge <laughs> Mega Man fan my entire life. So when, when Brady said, yeah, we got the Mega Man license, I was like, you son of a gun. Uh, <laughs> so I said to him, I've never said this to a publisher. I never even imagined saying this to a publisher. And, you know, to be clear brady's not the publisher brady sadler i'm talking about brady uh is like one of the main designers and developers for blacklist games but i was like brady stop i'm gonna design a Mega Man game and i'm gonna pitch it to you and if you like it i'm gonna be the one making that game for your company <laughs> and he's like all right man if you if you want to make it feel free we haven't done anything yet so because probably he would have been designing it otherwise you know him and uh his brother adam so uh so I, I talked to peter a bit like kind of hashed out concepts but our, the way we work with our co-designing thing is that one of us uh kind of is the lead designer for something. They do the initial design work and get the concept put together and get it in some kind of playable state. And then the other person becomes kind of lead developer. We sort of switch off that uh, responsibility. Like for the the game that we're publishing next year, Peter's the lead developer or the lead designer on that one. So yeah, I threw something together. And once we had it where we were happy with it, we went to uh, to Brady and Adam and we, we played it with them on Tabletop Simulator. And they were like, yep, that's good. We'll, we'll get you the contract information like tomorrow. And I was like, oh, that was, that's it. <laughs> it's certainly a lot easier when you know the people you're talking to and already have a relationship with them. You know, they're not going to ghost you or, or lie to you or whatever. Well, hopefully not. I've had that happen to me, but we won't go into that. Oh, well, I'm sorry, dude. <laughs> uh, I guess it could happen. But yes, so that, so that was it. We, we got the game signed. They liked the thing. And then uh, we worked with them. We uh, worked with us. We did a mix of playtesting with people from One Stop Co-op Shop, like our patrons and our Discord members and their uh, uh, people who do Blacklist uh, playtesting. And yeah, now now it's done and it's and it's for pre-order and it's pretty crazy. It's, it's good to finally have a game that people can order again, like <laughs> Dark Dealings and Salvation Road are basically both out of print. Um, and Van Ryder doesn't want to reprint that. I think we already got the rights back. And Dark Dealing somehow is now owned by Greater Than Games, who does Spirit Island and Sentinels of the Multiverse, but they're like keeping it in a warehouse and haven't done anything with it. Uh, so great. <laughs> so uh, yeah, we, we need something new. We need some uh, fresh blood out there for people to talk about. Yeah, for sure. And congratulations on getting a game signed and it being one of the things that you have loved. And that's uh, I always love it when the, the designer loves the IP because I feel like it comes through. I've played several games that were based on things that I was really excited about, IPs that I loved, whether it was comics or movies or something like that. And you play the game and you go, oh, 
the designer, it, it seems like they've never even seen this movie. They, it's kind of like uh, the the live action Avatar movie. Oh god, yeah, a live action Avatar where it's like Ong, and it's like ah oh, god. Like I know maybe they were trying to like do some kind of like cultural res- cultural respect for like the correct way the name should have been said. But come on now. <laughs> oh man, and yeah, I think that is just the epitome. Like that's the number one answer a lot of people go to as like the the poster child of like doing this the wrong way. Of you obviously don't care about this. You have no love for the IP for the fans or anything like that. And so it's amazing when the designer really does watch the show, love the movie, love the comic, whatever, love the game. And cause it, because it shows through. And so congrats on that. And yeah, I guess the moral of the story is become really good friends with people <laughs> that uh, can give you access to publishers. And I mean, that's, that's the nature of any industry though. It's all about who, you know, no matter where you go or what you're doing. But anyway, let's, uh, let's dive into co-op games, cooperative games. And uh, let's start off. Let's, let's chat about, cooperative versus collaborative. I think that's a really good place to begin. And I mean, those are kind of synonyms and, and kind of mean the same thing, but let's, let's talk about what, what is the difference between a co-op game and a game that's really just kind of collaborative. Yeah. And to give credit where it's due, I think, I don't know if he heard it somewhere, but Steve from our channel was the first one who like kind of used those two terms for me. So this might be totally made up and maybe nobody else thinks this way, but uh, for, for me, a game is more collaborative if you are working on the same team. So it's still a co-op game. You still win or lose together, but generally speaking, you are going off and doing your own things. So like some examples, a pandemic can be cooperative when you put out uh, the supply stations to help people teleport around, when you meet up to trade cards, but a lot of it is collaborative. Like you can talk about where people are going to go, but I'm off in like Africa curing these diseases while you're over in Japan, right? Or um, Arkham Horror, you know, as another one. A lot of these adventure games with these big maps Sometimes there's no co-op except that we are working towards the same goals. You're off in, you know, uh, if it's Arkham, you know, you're at the witch's house, uh, like finding a magical dagger and I'm battling a Dagon up at like a dock. You know what I mean? So, uh, so, so that, that's what I mean when I say like collaborative, the mechanics do not have the characters or the players directly, like mechanically integrated with each other. Instead, it's uh, more that they are working side by side to achieve the same goals. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like a lot of dungeon crawlers are more collaborative than cooperative. And I love those, you know, and and our role playing games are a very uh, cooperative, like kind of experience, but you're kind of controlling your own character. And sometimes you like go off and have your own little mini adventure. So that's what I mean by the collaborative side on the cooperative side, uh, Mega Man Adventures, which is is, uh, my latest design with Peter. Um, we, we took uh, we kind of adapted the mechanic that was in the Batman uh, animated series game that's delivering soon. Actually, I think right now. And it uh, was originally in the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle uh, adventure game from IDW. And how it works is you have a bunch of dice that are your actions, but one of the dice goes to the player on uh, your right and one of the dice goes to the player on your left. So you kind of share this dice and you have to like talk about each other about how you split the actions up. That's one of the core mechanics of Mega Man, except it's a card play instead of dice. So I have a hand of cards, but I have to play at least one card to the player on my right and one card to the player on my left. And we can see what the obstacles in our stage are ahead of us. So you get this great table talk. You get this great conversation. And you can have great conversation with collaboration too, but it's more like a uh, a divvying up of tasks, if that makes sense, often. It's like, hey, can you go kill that dragon over there while I go and take care of this other thing? Whereas in a more heavily cooperative game, you're having conversations like, you know, I'll play this card and then you'll play that card and then I'll do this and then you'll combo in that with that. So uh, th- that's kind of the, uh, yeah, sorry, <laughs> I went on long there, but that- that's what I mean when I mean like cooperative versus collaborative. 
Yeah, and it makes a lot of sense. And it's definitely something to think about when you're starting off the design, like how much cooperation versus how much collaboration. It's definitely something to just be thinking about and what kind of experience you're trying to create. Because if you lean more into one than the other, you're creating a different experience. My favorite video game of all time is Left 4 Dead. Yes. And it is as cooperative as it gets because there are moments in the game where you get snatched up by a special zombie and it doesn't matter who you are. You could be the greatest Left 4 Dead player in the entire universe and it doesn't matter because you now can do nothing because that zombie has grabbed you and you have to have a teammate come over and either kill a zombie or, or punch you and knock the thing loose or whatever. Like you can't do anything in that moment. And I love that. I love that everything was kind of balanced out by the team. And it wasn't just, it wasn't like basketball where you have one superstar and, and he scores all the points and he gets all the kills in, in the video game case. Like, no, you had to have, it, it's more like soccer where you had to have a, a really good team and, and you had to, everybody had to pull their own weight and otherwise you're going to give up goals. Right. And so I think it's just something to think about. Now, when you are thinking about a game on the front end, as far as, cooperative versus collaborative what do you what's your thought process what are, what are you thinking through as far as leaning one way or the other give me like the behind the scenes look at that sure well a lot of it comes in with the genre of game because certain genres of games tend one way or the other um like i said adventure games like this uh this dragon adventure game we're publishing next year that one we, we worked in some collaboration i mean sorry some cooperation some more like direct cooperation but that's more of a collaborative game because you are adventuring over this map and you're going in different directions and it's kind of the nature of the beast. Um, dungeon crawlers tend to go either way. So we, we also have a dungeon crawler game in development right now. And we've tried to work in little directly cooperative elements frequently. For, for anybody designing a dungeon crawler, this is something you should be thinking about. You see some dungeon crawlers where the abilities just deal extra damage you see some dungeon crawlers where the abilities give bonuses to other players or healing to other players, and that's where you get the more direct collaboration. Or one of my favorite things is what we did a lot of in our dungeon crawler design is um, pushing and pulling and like moving of enemies to set them up for other players to do cool stuff. That's one of my favorite things. Like Gloomhaven does a really nice job with this. You can create elements for other players' abilities to activate. You can taunt enemies away from other players. You can heal other players. You can boost other players' attacks. You can move enemies to set them up for the area of effect of uh, attacks of other players. So I, I definitely lean towards dungeon crawlers that are more collaborative, but I mean, sorry, cooperative, but there are a lot of dungeon crawlers that are like more kind of, I do my thing, you do your thing. I walk over and attack this guy. You walk over and attack your guy. The abilities don't really help each other much, except for like the healer. Everybody else is just doing damage, doing damage, doing damage. So I think, uh, again, some genres kind of lean one way or the other and if you're in a genre that doesn't have it much, you have to find ways to sneak it in. If you're doing a dungeon crawler, find ways to get the direct collaboration or something. <laughs> See, these are the same damn word. <laughs> and we're just <laughs> putting this arbitrary meaning on one or the other, which is <laughs> terrible for a conversation. But uh, yeah, you, you need to work in. The, well, you don't need to, but I prefer as a gamer and as a designer and as a reviewer <laughs> to have that direct cooperation worked in. Because as much as I love games that are very collaborative and I can still have fun with them, I don't know about you, Gabe, but if I'm playing like a four-player game of Pandemic, I have a tendency maybe to zone out when it's not my turn right. because I don't really have any stake in what they're doing, whereas a game that is very directly co uh, cooperative is not going to have that happen. Like uh, another good example, uh, Quirky Circuits. This is this <laughs> not that well-known plaid hat game. I'm, I'm probably the biggest fan of it that I know because most people don't even like know it or have played of it, but it's a cooperative programming game. And you can compare that to... Um, 
Mechs versus Minions, also an amazing cooperative programming game. Um, both those are awesome games. Mechs versus Minions tends towards more collaborative. The objectives are set up, so you often have to send your mechs in different directions. You can help each other out. You can defend each other. You can, like, boost each other. I'm not saying you can't. I'm not saying it's not in there. But that's not the focus of the design, and that's okay. But Quirky Circuits, you're all programming the same robot together, and you're literally interspacing your programming cards, and you're not sure what the other person is playing, so you're getting an element of limited communication and limited awareness of the other people's cards. Now, that can be frustrating, of course, if you plan like the wrong thing, but that makes it intimately cooperative on every turn. I'm paying minute attention to every action the other person is doing, whereas Mechs versus Minions, I'm mostly mentally grappling with the puzzle of how my cards will play out, and I'm mainly briefly talking to other people and being like, oh, you're going over there? Cool, dude, you go over there. <laughs> you know, that's like the, the extent of our conversation. And again, neither is better than the other. But uh, I think it's important, like you said, at the outset of the design to maybe think about, first of all, which way your genre leans, and second of all, which way you want to kind of push it. Because um, I believe you can take almost any game and maybe in a tacked-on way or maybe in a deeply integrated way, make it more directly cooperative. Like, <laughs> you know, if we had Gloomhaven and each player picked one card for themselves and one card for the player on their right and I would get some random card to combo with my card, it would be more intensely cooperative, but I also think it wouldn't be better. So there are times where, like, trying to force more direct cooperation and more, like, uh, integration of players within each other's turns could be detrimental to a game design. But I think it is something to at least think about if you're going to do a cooperative game. And it's very different than competitive games, where, you know, often the point is for you to have a great puzzle on your turn, and it's not as much about you, like, minutely interacting with other people each round. 100%. It really comes down to what experience do you want to create? And while you're talking through like the different genres and different expectations, I was thinking, you know, what a great way to make your game stand out. There are so many dungeon callers, there's so many zombie games. It's kind of hard to do new stuff at this point, but this is a great way to stand out, to make your game different in the marketplace is to lean into collaboration or cooperation in a way that maybe other games haven't done that before. There are a lot of cooperative games that are, you're going through a dungeon killing stuff well, can you approach it from a different angle? And I think that's what Gloomhaven did such a good job of, of doing. It brought these like Euro mechanics and it brought these extra things to think about. It brought the puzzly nature of a game into a dungeon crawler and it's wildly popular because people are drawn to this like incredible intersection of different concepts. And so like, can you do that with your cooperative game and, and the way that you approach that experience? And like I said, I'm a huge fan of this stuff. I'm a football guy. You know, if you, you can have the best players in the world, if nobody blocks, nobody's getting any <laughs> yards, you know, you can throw the best pass, but if nobody's there to catch it, then sorry, that's an incomplete pass, you know? And so I, I love having to rely on other people. I love building a team. Um, I guess that's why I like Pokemon, you know, like there's so many other <laughs> games that kind of lend themselves to this. Uh, let's, let's dive into difficulty. Now, a lot of designers have their ideas as far as like, you know, win rates and percentages. Well, you know, you should only win 25% of the time, 33%. What is your win rate? Like, what do you prefer as a designer? And maybe it's different as a gamer. And then let's talk about difficulty and, and which knobs you can turn to kind of turn difficulty higher or lower or things like that. So, yeah, uh, that, that's a great question. Um, I'll be honest that as a player, and especially a very heavy solo player in addition to co-op, my win rate preference is probably easier than the average person. I hear a lot of solo players say they want like, you know, 20% win rate or 30% win rate. I like to win. I think it is fun to win. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I, I get that it's like a greater challenge to lose, 
and I'll be honest, I, I want the same thing everybody else wants. I want to win by the skin of my teeth. It is not fun for me to beat your game around like crazy. But that being said, uh, literally two of the last games I reviewed and played a ton of, Final Girl, that game can be incredibly tough or incredibly easy based on the luck of the roll. The playthrough I just did, I killed this guy. Like, it was Freddy Krueger. I murdered him worse than I've ever seen anything happen. Like, if this was a horror movie, he would have been dead in the street in, like, minute 20 of the film. And the rest of the time, the characters would have been standing around like, oh, that was it. Um, <laughs> and it was still a great time. And Role Player Adventures, Role Player Adventures I reviewed, that has a huge problem with difficulty in that uh, past, like, Mission 3, for me and most people I'm talking to, they don't fail a single skill check. They don't fail a single time. They never do anything but win. And it's still a blast because the narrative is so fun. But that's kind of beside the point. Um, what I'm trying to say is the type of game can already change the desire for difficulty. If I'm playing like a really intense solo Euro and the difficulty is not good, I'm bored. Like, what's the point? It's already about like the mechanics and how tough it is for me to like get my puzzle together to barely squeak a win. So, so there I'm going to have like kind of a higher threshold for what the difficulty should be. But as a designer, and I know uh, you had David Thompson and Trevor uh, Benjamin on talking about Undaunted uh, recently, and I agree with them. The biggest thing for co-op games is not necessarily where the difficulty starts, although that is a very important question to ask yourself to know your audience, because as we all know, a lot of games only get played once or twice these days. So you do want that first experience to be tuned to what you think your core audience and market would be. But the big thing is just have ways to vary the difficulty. Um, and make them clear. And, and we did a whole podcast on this. Um, a lot of it is in how you label it. So, so let me give you a few examples. Let's say I'm doing like a heavy uh, dungeon crawler, right? And I want to capture like those Gloomhaven players. Um, although Gloomhaven's a pretty broad market now, so maybe that's not the best example. But I might want my win rate there to be like 30% or 40% at the standard difficulty, Right. Because they want a tough puzzle, they want it to be challenging, they want to maybe play some scenarios twice and like figure out the way to beat them. That might be kind of what they're going for. But then if I'm doing like a family weight uh, cooperative game, maybe I want the starting uh, win rate to be like at 70%. And the nice thing is you can get both of those with the right labels. And video games have been doing this for years. You know all about this game. Like when you'll play like a sports game or a shooter, they'll have like <laughs> fanciful names for the difficulty settings. You know, it'll be like, I, I want you to kill me or nightmare difficulty or Heisman mode. Yeah. Heisman mode or weenie <laughs> mode, you know, and, and, and they often have derogatory terms for the easiest difficulty settings. And these really nasty terms for the hardest difficulty settings, which is, Fine if you know that your core gamer wants the higher difficulty, right? But you can also name things in nicer ways to make those very difficulty settings kind of more palatable for people. A great example is, um, let's say I have a game that I want to appeal to casual gamers and hardcore gamers, right? We always want that. Um, maybe I say the starting difficulty is family mode, right? And... When you're done with family mode, after you play that a few times, then you can go into, you know, gamer mode or normal mode or hardcore mode or whatever you want to call it. The nice thing about that kind of naming convention is casual gamers know where they should start. They don't mind that it's called family mode. They're going to play it. No problem. The hardcore gamers make a choice. And this is important, I think, when you present difficult, different uh, difficulty settings and you talk about this choice. They make a choice. I don't need that family mode. I'm going to play hardcore mode right off the bat, first game. And if you make hardcore mode really hard and they lose terribly, 
often when somebody loses a game terribly, like, oh my gosh, I can't even see how I could have won that, they'll be frustrated with the game and they'll never play it again. But there's a little like mental gymnastics going on if you've given them the choice to start with something and they went beyond it. It's kind of the same with like a tutorial scenario. If you choose to skip it, if you choose to jump to the higher difficulty setting and you get your butt kicked, at least I believe as a gamer, you're not going to have as negative, as visceral reaction to that because you put yourself there. You know what I mean? And you made that happen. So, so yeah, for, for me, I'm not as worried about like <laughs> whether a game has just a 20% win rate or just a 70% win rate. I'm worried about giving a lot of options to tailor the experience to what you want. And I'm worried about uh, making it clear that you are making choices in that difficulty so that you don't blame the game design itself when it goes one way or the other. You know, say, by the same difference, if I'm a hardcore gamer and I play Flashpoint Family uh, Fire Rescue in the family mode, like this kind of starting mode where you don't have the trucks, you don't have to worry about like as many fires, you don't have to worry about the explosions, and I destroy it, again, it's a pretty bad experience for somebody who's like, that game's too easy, I'm never playing it again. But if I pl- chose to play on family mode, <laughs> I'm going to be like, okay, now let's try the real game. You know, I'm not going to stop playing. I'm going to give it at least one more chance. So I think you can get yourself uh, out of uh, nasty first play reactions by kind of having your difficulty levels uh, labeled correctly and making it clear that the player is making a choice. Sorry, I know I kind of went off. (laughs) No, you're good. And you make a great point. It really could come down to just semantics and how you're labeling it. Oh, so much. So much. I think Halo, if I remember right, Halo does a really good job. The video game Halo does a great job with this because it's, if I remember right, there's four modes. There's easy, normal, hard, and legendary, right? And it, the game starts off on normal. And if you beat the game on normal, well, that's normal. You're supposed to beat it. Like, that's yep. fine. That's yep. nothing wrong with normal. It's normal. It's the way the game was intended to be beaten. But there's also that legendary. And I love that word, legendary. It's like, it's all the other words are just kind of regular, you know, easy, normal, hard. All right, that's as generic as it gets. But then there's legendary. And so I like having that little extra and you know it's going to be hard and it's going to be crazy and you're going to die all the time. You're going to be really smart with your ammo and stuff like that. I think that's a really cool way to handle it. And again, it's just semantics at the end of the day. But if you called normal mode, I don't know, weakling mode or, you know, like weenie mode or something like that, it's like, oh, well, you know, it, it, again, it kind of feels like you're supposed to start at a harder place and then somebody might do that. They haven't played the game. They don't know how to play. They're not any good at it. They die over and over again. It's not fun. They quit. So they play your game for an hour as opposed to, you know, playing it, you know, for days and days and days like we did with Halo, right? So I think it's just something to think about. Now, when it get, when it comes to like notching or, or turning up the difficulty, turning it down, what are some things that you've seen work well, maybe in your own designs or others? Maybe, you know, something deeper than just start the game with five less resources. I mean, those are kind of easy. You know, start off with less cards, start off with less life, time, whatever the resources are. I think that's kind of an easy way to turn the difficulty up or down. What about more in-depth ways that you've seen work as far as like changing the difficulty? Yeah, yeah. so uh, uh, our favorite way to do it, and I've seen this in a lot of other designs, is uh, to not only add difficulty, but also add variety. That's kind of my preferred way to do it. So in Mega Man Adventures, for example, once you're beating the game consistently, which I don't know if you ever will, because there's enough randomness there that even a good player will lose sometimes. But we have these uh, Dr. Wily sabotage cards. So instead of just making you have more enemies or more like life on the enemies or that kind of stuff, instead, you've got this whole deck of cards and you can draw one or two of them, depending on how hard you want it to be. And it'll kind of change up the whole puzzle and change up your calculus for that game. So it'll feel different than other times you've played the game. And that's uh, the way that we prefer to do it. I'm also seeing that right now in, uh, what do I have set up on my table? It's the newest uh, game in the Valiant Defenders series. This is a solo war game series by David Thompson. (laughs) Here's David Thompson again, friend of the show. Um, (laughs) And um, 
what he does is he has these tactics cards. So when you want the battle to be tougher, you shuffle this deck of cards and the enemies get a free card every turn and it gives them special powers. So again, like the game is going to be more different when it's harder and not just harder. It's not just that. Because I mean, uh, go, going back to like Halo, like you were just talking about us, Gabe, um, the hardest difficulty setting where you die if you get shot once and the enemies have like five times as much life. So the battles become a grind. I don't find that fun at all, personally. Like, I know that the the masters of the game want to do that. They want to master the game. They want to be able to, like, you know, these days want to be able to, like, post their stream of them beating it on the hardest difficulty setting. But I find those kind of ways of doing difficulty, just lowering health, decreasing health, first of all, they tend to screw up balance completely. You know what I mean? If your game is meant... If, you're, if your dungeon crawler is fun for an hour and you suddenly just blanket increase the life of every enemy and now the game takes two hours because you have to grind through enemies longer that's not gonna be the experience you fine tune that's not gonna be the experience that you had your playtesters playing for the majority of the time you know and same thing by like making it easier like sometimes you'll suddenly make uh, enemies one shotable and they weren't one shotable before and suddenly the board is too clear and suddenly these powers don't work and suddenly this entire class is not interesting so i think it's very dangerous to uh to do what you said, Gabe, and just like kind of drop in things. So yeah, per- personally, my favorite way is a unique deck of cards, a like bonus component. And maybe it's in your expansion. A lot of games will do that. You know, they're like, hey, you've mastered the game. Here's some harder, like here's some harder deck you can work in. Here's events you can include. Event cards is another popular way to do kind of the same thing, right? Like you draw an event every turn and suddenly the puzzle is different. Suddenly this costs more. Suddenly the enemies are stronger, but it's only for one round, not the entire game. Um, th- th- that's what I like to do it. Like, don't just make it harder or easier, but increase variety. And, and on the easy side, too, I think it's way more interesting and fun and thematic to have a helper deck, right? Like, let's say you're doing, a, like, like you're a robot game, right, uh, Gabe? You're, I don't know much about it, but you're adventuring around. You're making, like, your little Pokemon crew of robots, right? I think that's what you said it was about. Oh, so, yeah. you know, isn't it cooler on easy mode to have an extra helper robot that travels around with you? Or to have like this little guy hovering with you and you draw a card every turn and he'll either drop items for you or hurt the enemies a little bit. It's a theme thing. It's a fun mechanical thing. It's varied what it does. And it adds something fun to the game. Whereas if you just said, hey, all the enemies have one less life or all the heroes have plus two life. uh, Not as interesting. You know what I mean? And and even um, to give an example of where it is kind of that like forced in easier mode or harder mode, but it still works pretty well. Too Many Bones, one of my favorite uh, co-op adventure games, all they do is give you more life and more training if you do an easier level. But here's the thing, more training lets you get more of these awesome, like, unique abilities that are the entire core of the fun for me in the game, right? Like, unlocking these abilities and doing the different builds for your characters. So in that one, I don't mind that they kind of cludgily just, like, said, hey, take some more stuff, (laughs) because the stuff is the most fun part of the game. That's very different than just modifying some numbers to make it easier or harder. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's a great point. And while you're talking through the different ways of doing it, one thing I was thinking through is like when you're thinking about your AI, instead of making it harder, can you make it smarter? Mm. So now it's more challenging, right? And I think you mentioned like adding extra abilities for the bosses or adding extra an extra deck of cards that now the monsters are doing something differently and they have the same amount of health. You have the same amount of power, same number of bullets and all that kind of thing. But now you're approaching the puzzle differently or the monsters are behaving differently than they normally do. They've got extra things going on, extra movement you have to take into account, maybe extra abilities that if this is your first playthrough, don't use that because it's too much. It's a little, maybe too complex. But now that you're really good at the game, it's become a little easy. Okay, now add these extra abilities make the enemies uh, smarter make the ai 
smarter, not just change. But to be fair, it's a lot easier just to go, oh, okay, everything has 10 more health and you have 10 less. <laughs> like that's a really easy way to do it. And, and with, so, uh, with solo games, you know, that's what a lot of people do. And, uh, you know, nothing against that. That's, you know, a lot of players want that. They, they, they want to try to beat the game by the skin of their teeth because they started off with one health and they, they didn't get hit a single time. And it's like a, a challenge. It's like a badge, you know, on a, on a video game. But can you make the AI smarter? And let's dive into that. Let's talk about AI. When you're creating an AI system for a cooperative game, which I feel like is just one of the most vital aspects, is having a system that's interesting, that's challenging without just being, you know, that just doesn't destroy you every turn. It's not overly complex, overly complicated. It's, it's not an easy thing to accomplish. So tell me your process for creating an AI system that's fun, that's interesting, that also lends itself to being able to change the difficulty, to have these extra abilities, have these extra cards, things like that. Tell me about your process. Well, first of all, I mean, it's hugely different based on what your concept of the game is. Within a fully cooperative realm, sometimes you have like an active opponent, right? Like a boss that has their own deck and they're doing stuff to you, like a Kingdom Death Monster, right? You have like the boss AI deck and the, the lion you're fighting or the giant devil ram or the, you know, whatever weird monster you're fighting, Kingdom Death Monster, Um they draw cards and they do stuff based on those cards. So that's kind of like an almost AI opponent. But then in uh, Pandemic, you know, it's 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 card draw, right? Like you wouldn't really call that an AI. There's no there's no AI algorithms. They don't have to measure which enemy is closest to the <laughs> the epidemic cubes they're putting out or whatever, right? So so that's already different. And, that, and very different than that even is when you're doing a solo game or a solo variant. I do a lot of solo variants for other people's games. It's like kind of because I like doing it. And um, and often my goal there is making like an automa, like I'm trying to actually replicate another player, which is different than the lion maybe, and kind of like the basic AI, but it's also different than just like sort of playing against the game and the random event cards of Pandemic. So it's a very different process based on which of those I'm doing. Uh, that being said, for Mega Man, for example, there isn't really an AI, it's challenges that are put in front of you. Now they're randomized and the bosses have like a random pattern and they have tons of powers. So the puzzle becomes more complicated for the player, but there is no intelligence there. You're just going through the stage. You're just playing the video game. You know what I mean? Um, so that seemed like the best way to do that because it's a very quick game. It's a very light game. We didn't want there to be enemy turns. There are no enemy turns in Mega Man Adventures. Some games need an enemy turn but sometimes that's the slowest part of the game. Sometimes that's the least interesting part of the games. I, I certainly rag on games a lot in my reviews when the player turn takes one minute <laughs> and upkeeping the, the enemy turn is 10 minutes. So sometimes you don't have an AI at all, is what I'm trying to say. Like you just have challenges that must be overcome. Um, but our process when we have an AI, when we actually like have something playing against you, both in my solo variants and in... Uh, like our boss designs for our adventure games and that kind of thing on our own designs, we tend to go for, I'm very much a fan of randomized activation decks and they're very popular. You get that in Aeon's End with the cards you draw for the bosses there. You get that in Gloomhaven with the AI cards for each of the enemy types. That That's definitely my preference because you get that variety, you get that unpredictability, but as you learn a boss, as you learn a game, your skill can come to bear. Your knowledge can help you have a higher win rate. Um, so I like those kind of things. And even in my solo variants, I'll tend to, usually I try to use the games already, uh, the cards already in the game because I don't like to add components to a game for solo if I can help it. Um, 
but I'll, I'll like make some kind of algorithm. I, I play a lot of war games. Uh, <laughs> I play a lot of coin games, these really complicated counterinsurgency games from GMT. And those have uh, spreadsheets and those have flow charts. And of course, nothing I'm designing is that complicated. I'm not like at that war game level, but that's a like way to do an AI that is very deterministic and can really control the experience that happens. Like, oh man, if the AI does this, it's stupid. So I'm not going to leave it up to a random card draw. I'm going to have a flow chart and they will check does the, you know, is the player within one step of winning? If they are, don't do this, <laughs> do that, or they win immediately, you know? So, um, but, but that's also one of the big, uh, like kind of <laughs> the give and takes of co-op design and uh, AI design specifically. Um, to what extent do you want your player to have to run the AI? Because this is a board game. I guess we can, you know, app integrated games are a little bit different, but this is a board game and whatever you're doing with the AI, I have to make it happen. Do I want the AI to be smarter or do I want the AI to be quicker? A lot of uh, solo games, you know, especially like solo Euros, will just go to beat your own score. Like there is no automa at all. It's like, hey, just play the game, but try to get over 100, <laughs> you know, which I find generally the least interesting. It doesn't really keep my attention, but I have to give it credit. It's all my turn. I don't have to do anything. You know what I mean? Like I'm always playing the game. I'm never running a system. Whereas something like a coin game, I spend much more time going through those flow charts and running the turns of three separate, unique, <laughs> diverse faction AI opponents than I do on my turn. My turn is fast as heck. And then they're like, okay, now I got to okay, carry the one. And then, okay, T, <laughs> T squared. You know, like I'm doing all this stuff. Now my brain and a lot of like, you know, grognod war gamers like me, um, at least me back in the day, my brain is okay with that. And I enjoy, as a designer, I enjoy seeing how Automa work. And I enjoy like running through the AI system. But a lot of gamers don't want that. They're like, please let me play the game faster. So I do think um, th that's, again, why for my preference to make a long answer, I'm very much into uh, random AI cards. Because it's a nice marriage of the control. Like the AI will do something somewhat intelligent. You can have like a, a lot of AI games will have like a mini flow chart. You know, it's like if the boss has 10 or more damage, heal, but otherwise smash the guy in the face, right? It's not a long flow chart. I don't have to like spend forever thinking about it, but I've put a bit more intelligence into my AI and the cards allow that. And, and just the quickness of drawing cards. And again, the randomness and the diversity in the experience, even if I have a stupid game, it's still kind of more interesting to see what happens the next time I fight that lion. Um, sorry, I keep on coming back to the KDM, I guess. <laughs> uh, I, I, yeah. So Jesus, I don't know if I even answered the question at that point, but no, and you, you, lots of different angles that, that you're going at and just some some of my thoughts on that. One, I love the idea of cards because it's random. At the same time, it's controlled randomness because if you want something to happen 50% of the time, yep. you just make 50% of the cards that thing and it's controlled inside the deck versus a die, which who, who knows what's going to happen. You could literally roll the exact same side over and over and over again. Yeah, yeah. So, so <laughs> every designer out there, don't design a game where like the AI rolls cards or uh, dice every turn. And like on a six, they win or on a six, they get a victory point. Um, it can work sometimes. In fact, I have a game right now that it's it's quick enough and it's fast enough. It's not a big deal, but you're going to get these like unbalanced, like terrible uh, <laughs> games for your players if you leave it too much to fate. Like, yeah, I'd say deck of cards, token bag, you know, like you, you draw five cards and then you shuffle them all together again. So every five turns you get this thing. I I'm a big proponent of that uh, for, like you said, Gabe, the control of it. Yeah, for sure. And personally, as a designer, I am always worried and concerned about time. How long is this AI turn taking? I want it to last as, as 
I want it to go as quickly as possible. And if I can do the entire thing, like you're saying, in one card draw, and that gives me like a, maybe a, a little bitty flow chart that's like, if this, then that. If if a, a player is one square away, do this. If they are two or more squares away, do that. Like very, very simple. You look at the board, you know exactly what the thing is going to do. Uh, I think but going back to the die though. So it's kind of funny. I've got this RoboMind game, this Pokemon style game. And if you ever played Pokemon, you know that the AI is a bit weird sometimes and yep. sometimes the computer it just does something that doesn't make any sense but that's the game and so i wanted to have that to a certain degree but i wanted to smarten it up a little bit so there is the randomness there is the die right so uh when you have an ai turn you roll a d4 and then that corresponds to different abilities and the way i adjust it is so not every uh, robomon has four abilities some of them have two some have three and i can make certain abilities more likely than others so if you roll a one or two this thing happens or if you roll a three this happens or if you roll a four that happens so i can kind of adjust it on the opposite end the way you adjust it with cards i can kind of do that controlled with the die to a certain degree but then the smartness comes in the targeting so if you roll let's say you're fighting a water robomon type and they roll their water cannon uh, action. Well, when you look at the target, it's going to target a fire Robomon of yours first before it tries to target anybody else. So it's going to actively attack the thing it's going to do the most damage against. So it has a smart nature, even though it is still a little bit random, can be a little bit dumb. Like, well, you shouldn't have done that. You should have hit the water cannon. No, my, you know, whatever. But trying to find that place. But it's also nostalgia because that's what people remember playing Pokemon Red, Pokemon Blue back, you know, 40 million years ago when we were <laughs> young. Uh, Anyway, so it's again, it's experience. What are you trying to accomplish? So that's some things I've been wrestling with uh, lately is, is like having some randomness, but also trying to smarten it up so it kind of balances out. Uh, anyway, that's what I've been focusing on. Well, and, and just to add one thing, I know we're going uh, long, but uh, actually we were working on a game with uh, Richard Launius. This is a while back. And he said something that I really took away for designing. And that's um, especially in a game that is about more experience and not like a really tightly tuned Euro, for example, it's okay to have those extreme swings and to have those amazing moments. And what I'll add on to that kind of in terms of AI, it's okay, we're talking about AI intelligence, it's okay to design some stupidity in your AI if it makes the players have more fun. Hmm. Like, let me give you an example. Uh, there are a lot of like games where you can like leave a trap for an enemy, right? Like there's a trap sitting on the ground. And a lot of uh, games will have the AI, you know, they'll say the movement system is, the AI will move on the most direct path to your character. If it's tied, you choose. And some gamers hate that. They're like, I choose. Why isn't it smarter than that? I want it to go to the best spot. But here's the thing. It's not fun if it goes to the best spot because then you can't do his cool stuff. If I can, <laughs> you know, if in, a, if in a game I can leave my explosion, my dynamite, and then the AI walks around it, I've wasted my ability. My character's not cool anymore. It wasn't fun. My great idea didn't go anywhere. It's like a bad uh, GM in an RPG, right? You want to let your players do cool things sometimes and not squander their hopes and dreams and plans. Um so yeah, so I, I think as much as you want to think about how smart your AI is, you also want to think about how dumb your AI is and how much choi uh, chance you can give in there for crazy things to happen in the player's favor that will create, you know, memories and stories around the game table that could last for years. Like, oh man, remember the time that the dragon could have killed you, but instead he just sat down and went to sleep and then, you know, John jumped on his head and just killed him. <laughs> like that kind of stuff, it can be great. Again, I, I guess I'm leaning more towards like thematic gameplay here. Uh, which I guess is definitely my preference for a lot of games that I play. But yeah, I, I think uh, you got to think about how stupid your AI is as well as how smart it is, as long as it serves the player experience. Like you said, it's all about the player experience. Right. And a lot of times it also comes down to pushing your luck, like in, in my game. So you might have a situation where there's a 25% chance 
that that Robomon near yours, that opponent Robomon near yours, is going to roll a die and it's going to get that critical hit and it's going to crush you. It's going to do a ton of damage in one turn. And if that happens, it's going to screw up all of your plans. It's going to screw up everything <laughs> you're setting up. It's going to screw up all the, the ideas and, and things that you're trying to, to do on your turn. But 25% chance. Hey, that's pretty good odds. You know, and so, but but there, you don't know. You're not entirely sure. Now, if you were playing against a, a human, you know 100% they're going to do that because why wouldn't they? Why, why would they do anything else? But you've got this really interesting push your luck thing and then you roll that die and there's tension, you know, and you kind of got a little sweat going. You got a little goosebumps. You're not entirely sure because if this works the way you hope it will, you're going to win. But if it doesn't, and then it's going to totally go off the rails and you're it's going to blow up in your face. And that's fun. That's interesting. Again, it's giving the player choices and it's not just, well, this is the most obvious thing in the world the AI should do. That's what it's going to do. And that's it. There's no choice there. So anyway, I like having that kind of push your luck. Let's see what happens. Well, and there's a, I'll give a great example of kind of two ways of doing this for like a dungeon crawler, for example, um, Gloomhaven versus sword and sorcery in enemy activation. Okay. Going back to AI. So in sword and sorcery, each enemy has, if I'm three away from you, I'll do this. If I'm two away from you, I'll do this. If I'm one away from you, I'll do that. 100% set in stone. Like they're not going to decide randomly to do Y. They're always going to do Z if you're at this range. And that has the huge benefit of increasing the puzzle and increasing the possibility of doing like cool tactical things because you know how they'll respond. You can play the AI against themselves, right? Yeah. But the negative of that is you know exactly what they're going to do. There's no pushing your luck like you just said. There's no like thrill of the card draw, thrill of the roll. It just is what it is. Gloomhaven, I know that 33% of the time, the rattling guys are going to do this when they're archers. They're going to attack me from range. But there's that one card where they run up for no dang reason. (laughs) And if I draw that card and I don't get killed by them, and instead they run up to my face and then I punch them with my my axe fist, you know, or whatever, (laughs) that... That can be a better experience, and it might be less of a puzzle, might be less tactically interesting, but it could be more, uh, you know, emotionally interesting. And again, it all comes down to what you want for your gamers, or, you know, if you're thinking from a capitalist sense, what you think will sell for your gamers. Are they going (laughs) to want more of a solo, or sorry, not solo, a puzzle experience, or are they going to want more of a, uh, by the seat of your pants, push your luck experience? And and a cool thing you can do, (laughs) just throw a quick idea out there, design different classes to do different ones of those things. Yeah, I think, absolutely. I think a lot of games do this really well. Like, uh, um, I don't know. I just played the expansion for lost runes of Arnak and they have these new characters in it. And some of them are much more luck based and like, they need their cards to come out in the right order. And some of them like things always work out correctly. Or, uh, in our game, Mega Man adventures, proto man is an entirely push your luck character. Every one of his skills might help you or might hurt you. Mega Man just gets plus one, you know, <laughs> like, you know, he's going to be good. You know, he's going to be able to jump over that thing. He knows how to kill that enemy. He's just going to do it, but he might not be flashy with it. Proto Man might blow up in his own face, but he might uh, do the most amazing things ever. And knowing that telling, by the way, tell your players in the rule book, be like, this character has this play style. This character has that play style. Let them know. And then your player who likes push your luck can play the push your luck character. Your player who likes determinism can play determinism. You know, uh, Summoner Wars, you had the Phoenix Elves who would do automatic damage. I don't want to roll in Summoner Wars. I suck at rolling. Now you don't need to. (laughs) Your characters kill them automatically. No rolling involved. So I think that's a great thing to kind of explore within the player side of things and the classes you play or the factions you play or the characters you play. You can introduce more or less randomness. I guess I've kind of gotten away from AI and gone into randomness in general. But you can uh, introduce more or less control, and then you kind of get the best of both worlds because players who know themselves well can self-select the experience they want within the same game. 
It's not like I have to put away Gabe's game and play Mike's game. I can play, you know, either of them, but I can pick the one that's going to make me to have the most fun, the type of thing I want to do. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it takes more time and effort and energy to design, but at the end of the day, you're going to appeal to a lot more people because everybody's got those folks at game night that hate X type of game, yep. but everybody wants to play X type of game. And so at least there is a, a certain aspect of the game. It's like, oh, I hate luck. Oh, no, no, no. In that case, play this character because they, they don't have any luck. They don't roll dice. They do this token draw, thing, whatever it is. And now you're appealing to more gamers or just different experiences. Like, you know, somebody's played the luck based one over and over again. They want to try something different. There's a different experience inside the same box. And so, yeah, I think that's just something to definitely think about, at least on the front end, as maybe for your game. Mike, this has been excellent. Anything else? Anything else you want to make sure we talk about with cooperative games or, or anything maybe we haven't covered yet? No, I mean, uh, <laughs> there's so much. It's such a big topic. You know, it's kind of, I mean, imagine on the flip side, imagine you were like, hey, we're going to discuss competitive games and what makes them work. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good you point. Know, it seems absurd, right? Um, I, I guess the last thing I'll say is as someone who likes solo modes, kind of going back to our original discussion of uh, sort of more like indirect collaboration and direct cooperation. The one really nice thing about games that have more indirect collaboration is that they tend to be more solo friendly. So you kind of capture that solo crowd, right? Because if it's a game where we have three hands of cards minimum and each of us has to play two different cards, that's a little annoying for the solo player who's trying to replicate that experience. Like, oh, uh, oh, I'm not supposed to know what's in this other hand. Uh, I can't even play this game. Um <laughs> So I guess as much as I might lean towards the direct cooperation, uh, again, if you're in that more capitalist mindset, you want your game to sell as much as possible. People should know at this point, solo is a big thing. <laughs> Gabe, you know this. <laughs> you can sell entirely solo games and they will sell. You can design games with a solo mode. They will sell more. Uh, I think sometimes that's a negative of the heavy direct collaboration or cooperation. It can make it uh, tougher for your game to have a solo mode that works well. Yeah, that's a really good point. And just thinking through, okay, if you're not any good at it, finding someone like Mike who knows how to design solo modes might be worth an investment or worth worth at least reaching out and figuring it out. Because like you're saying, it's becoming a much bigger audience and, and demographic. I mean, the pandemic, if anything, made it grow by leaps and bounds, you know, because people were starving for games and, and couldn't leave their house. And now they found a solo games and they actually really enjoy it. They love playing competitive games and games with lots of people as well. But, you know, coming home late at night from work and you don't feel like talking to anybody, you just want to sit down and have a little experience on the table. There's a solo game for that. And uh, I'm trying to design as many as I can and put them out into the market. <laughs> and, yeah, it, it, I love that community. Well, Mike, this has been excellent. What would, all right, so closing thoughts. What would you tell designers from your perspective as a gamer and a reviewer, oh. right? So as a gamer and a reviewer, you're talking to game designers what would be your like one pet peeve, one thing for them just to keep in mind, one thing to remember, perfectly something we hadn't already talked about as far as designing co-op experiences? Put your game out there to as many playtesters as possible as early as you can. Well, not as early as you can. You needed to get a pretty good st- uh, like core of your game. But yeah, I this is more, I guess, the reviewer side. Usually when I'm buying games, I've done enough re- research and vetting and watching playthroughs and stuff that I don't get surprised by this. But on the reviewer side, I'm shocked by how many games I get sent that are like, or or they they try to send it to me and I'm like, heck no. <laughs> they have a rule book that's incomprehensible. They didn't either get more playtesters to do it or put it out for more people to help them with. Like we have such a generous community. And I'm not saying everyone has the reach of everyone else. 
like we have a big YouTube channel. We have a big discord. We have like a bunch of patrons. I can go to them and be like, Hey, anybody want to read this rule book? And I'll get like five or 10 volunteers immediately. I have a big advantage there. I get that. But you know, there's so many Facebook groups. There's so many design groups. There's so many people you can go to get people to read your rule book, get people to try your game out. I had such a skewed vision of what the experience of my game was. You've heard Gabe say like 10 times in this podcast, know the experience you're going for. I'll go one step further, know the experience you're going for, and then actually check that that's the experience your players are getting. Because (laughs) I don't care if you think your game is the most fun, rollicking party adventure ever, because my three friends said so. (laughs) Check that somebody else agrees, (laughs) you know? Check that it holds true for more people. Because you might think you designed the greatest, like, puzzly uh, Euro game ever, and then people play it and it feels totally random to them. Uh, so yeah, get get feedback, get playtesters, selectively listen to them. You don't have to take everything they say as truth and gospel and immediately change your game 50%, but get it out there. That, that, that's what I would say as a player and as a reviewer. Let people see your game. Uh, don't be afraid of feedback. As a teacher, as an actor, <laughs> as a designer, as a YouTuber, I want people to always transparently tell me what's not good. You want to got to ask those questions. You got to build up your guts to where you can take the hit where they say, this sucks and I didn't have fun. And you say, okay, let me reflect on how I can fix that instead of shutting down. But yeah, ask for feedback and get people to play your game. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm to a point now, man, I love when people give me negative feedback because that one conversation is going to save me 50 to 100 BGG comments of having to deal with or having to come in and be like questions and all that i mean shoot <laughs> we had them with uh some of realm of shadows we had them with uh woad ridge i think right didn't we have like a big conversation about the dice and woad ridge for a while oh yeah 100 percent, absolutely and you were instrumental in making that game more fun and a little bit more balanced and just more interesting overall because the way i had the dice set up was fine but it was not the best experience and you helped me create a much better experience for the player and that's a whole lot of people now that are going to hopefully benefit from playing that game and enjoying it and will never have any idea the the conversation back and forth and the playtesting and the prototyping and the changing this and changing that that went into it, but it's so daggone worth it. And it all started because you were willing to tell me a hard truth about what I needed to fix as far as those dice go. Because uh, there's one aspect, it just was not fun at all. And it's like, you know what? You're right. I didn't see it that way, but actually you're completely right. And I was able to make those changes. And so you, you need to have those people that you trust that are, are part of your target audience as well. Part, part of that target demographic you're going for. And then listen to them, trust them, and then make changes even if it's not your deal. Again, you're making a product to sell. It's not, you know, if I'm only making a game for myself, then fine, I'll do exactly what I want. But I'm trying to make games that other people really enjoy and hopefully buy. And so that's also something to just uh, be aware of. And, and that's another thing. Uh, sorry, I know you're trying to end it. <laughs> but 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 respect, if you find those good playtesters, shower them with praise, get their name in the rule book, send them a free copy of the game, get them locked in so you can keep using them because man when i find the people who like are willing to read through the whole rule book and find every grammatical error and point out all the parts that kind of confuse them like doing the work of like 10 people you're my best friend forever you know what i mean like you don't want to lose those people so if you find a good play tester and they, they are few and far between it is a tough skill for a lot of people uh yeah make them know how valuable they are to you yeah absolutely i completely agree on that. Well, hey, man, we've talked about Mega Man a good bit here, but we haven't talked about when to get it, where to buy it. Tell me those details. Yeah, so if you go to the Blacklist Games website, and I'll, I'll give Gabe a, a link if you can put it in the podcast info, um, it's up for pre-order right now. Uh, pretty pretty cheap. We're, we're very happy where we got the price point. I think it's 40 bucks, so not bad at all for, oh my gosh, we have so much... <laughs> 
shoved in that game. Like, so uh, we designed 34, 34 unique bosses. Like, what the heck? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so there's so much in that game uh, for 40 bucks. But yeah, so you can uh, go to the Blacklist Games website and pre-order it. Um, if you go to One Stop Co-op Shop, I have a few uh, playthroughs on there. It's also on BGG, so you can find the links for pre-orders and stuff uh, everywhere that you like might look for the game. Um, and we are, everything is done. The game is fully, uh, graphicked out, fully arted out. We're just like working on components right now. Um, and like the dice, we're trying to get the dice right. So it's supposed to be out a uh, quarter two. And I think that's very, uh, possible. Like pretty much we could probably go to print. I don't know, two weeks, three weeks. Well, no, I guess that's not true. We need to get a few more like white copies and, and double check a few things, but we could go to print very soon. So quarter two of 2022 is the, uh, the stated date of the game, but yeah, you can pre-order nice. it from blacklist right now. Do you know when the pre-order ends? Uh, they've not told me. I would fully imagine it's going to go at least into early quarter one, 2022. Okay, very cool. Well, again, congratulations on on the game. I've seen the playthroughs. It looks like a lot of fun. I love how you've uh, kind of brought those ideas from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which was just an incredible co-op game from not too long ago, but it seems like a long time ago now that IDW is not even making games know, anymore. Man. But uh, <laughs> it, it looks like a lot of fun. And so again, congrats on that and good luck with it and, and the pre-order for that and more games and everything else you got going on right now. Yeah. Thanks uh, Gabe. Good luck to you on realm of shadows and all your upcoming ones. I always enjoy playing your stuff. So uh, good to see more of it. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the board game design lab podcast is sponsored by quartermaster logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?